Ray wasn't with us last weekend because, of course, he had uh, he had some business to attend to, so we're glad to see him back. And I want to thank Ray for allowing me to uh, bring you this course. Uh, I've tried, it, tried a different uh, strategy as far as um, how to uh, bring up my slides. It's a, a little slower, but I think it's going to work out just fine, so we're going to try it again. I'm going to go to my C drive and... Um, bring up the first slide and we'll see what you think of this. I think it's a, I think it drives home a, a point I tried to make. This is this is called my. Uh, this is of course part two of the riddle of the Exodus. And last week we looked over some of the large uh, problems that plague the discipline of archaeology and more specifically Egyptology. Um, for those of you that are, are frequent watchers of the History Channel and the Discovery Channel, uh, Arts and Entertainment, uh, the National Geographic Channel, all of these uh, sources, all of these uh, entertainment shows, they tend to throw archaeology at us in terms uh, that are framed as if much of the information that they, that they disseminate to us is already proven and is already, if you will, written in stone. And what we tried to show last week is that is that most of the archaeology that is um, researched in the Near East is based on the Egyptian chronology, and the Egyptian chronology, of course, is is not set in stone. The Egyptian dynastic chart of over 30 dynasties through the centuries has been changed over 30 times, and the reason I'm repeating that is because it bears repeating, and because this timeline has problems, because it has holes in this timeline, it's problematic because other researchers and archaeologists who dig in the Near East, uh, in the antiquities of the Near East, they use the Egyptian chronology to base their timeline. Um, for instance, the, the Mycenaean and the Persian and the Babylonian and even the ancient Hebrew cultures are calibrated, if you will, to the Egyptian chronology. Another problem with this is what is called the three-age dating system. And I, I want to repeat this again, too, because it's a, it's, a, it's a good tool, and that's kind of a pun, because they base it on the tools and the artifacts that they find at a particular dig. But it's not to be used in a specific way. It's only good as a general reference tool when you're literally digging up physical artifacts. And that's why I have the picture of, on the left, the Kalahari Bushman that is found in South Africa, and our aliens. Now, this is an imaginary scenario, and I want you to bear with me, because what has happened is these two aliens happen to be archaeologists, okay? They've landed in what we now call South Africa, and they have encountered this gentleman on the left. They're, they're in the bushes, and they're watching him. Now, they're not going to interact with him because they're afraid of him, so they're simply going to observe how he hunts, how he lives, and they're going, to, they're going to observe by the way he dresses and by his tools. And then since they don't understand his language, they can't base any of their research or any of their observations on his speech. So they simply have to observe the way he lives, his culture, his artifacts. Now, here's what's going to happen. They're going to take notes. They're going to watch this guy at work. And then they're going to get back in their spaceship. And they're going to go back to their planet. And they're going to say, we've just been to Earth. And the entire population of the planet has only reached a technological level whereby they are using spears, they dress in loincloths, and they're also using stone tools. This, my friends, is the way much of archaeology and even Egyptology practices a lot of their dating, 
They will dig up a site, they will find cultural evidence, and they'll say, aha, there are Bronze Age tools in this site. So we're going to date this site according to the area or the period they call the Bronze Age. So you can see what I'm trying to illustrate by this really funny slide is the fact that the discipline, because it's, it's not a science, archaeology is not a science, it is a discipline that works on scientific observation and tools, really is riddled with a, a lot of unfortunate problems. We also talked about the timeline that, that will get archaeologists and biblical researchers into trouble is that they confuse the actual time that Israel spent, that the Hebrews actually lived in Egypt from the time that the 70, that's the 70, that's the offspring of Jacob and his family, moved to Egypt when Joseph was in power as prime minister, as the Grand Wazir of Egypt, and they finally left at the time of the Exodus. There are scholars with, with degrees on their walls who've studied this, this question of the Exodus for years, and even biblical archaeologists make the same mistake of saying we can't find, we cannot find the Hebrews living in Egypt for 400 years. And the reason, of course, is because they never lived there for 400 years. They only lived there for 210 years. And, of course, this quick chart that we showed you last week illustrates this. It shows that they were actually only there 210 years. And I'm going to, fact, I'm going to show you some sources if I have the time tonight, uh, other than what I've already shown you, which was the chart that uh, showed you how it was impossible, even with the text of the Torah, to prove that the Israelites were in Egypt for 400 years. Even the text of the Torah does not support this. It supports a shorter time period. The 400 years, of course, began with the birth of Isaac, and it ended with the Exodus experience. So we begin the next phase of our study, week two, and that is the other situation that we run into, whereby the, they're looking in the wrong time period, and they're also looking at the wrong pharaohs. Generally, in my research, for the archaeology of Egypt and the archaeology of the of the Exodus story, I have I have poured over books and I've gone to Egypt and I have found that that most archaeologists will look in this time period or this frame from the 13th dynasty all the way up to the 19th dynasty, and they all have various reasons for picking out these pharaohs as being the possible pharaohs of the Exodus. Some of the reasons are almost sound, and some of the reasons are almost ridiculous. The most interesting to us tonight are the pharaohs that were reigning in Egypt in a period known as the Middle Kingdom period, and they, they started to reign around the end of the 13th century, and they swept in, according to all accounts that we've read from the Egyptian record and from historians, they were called the Hyksos, uh, sometimes translated as the shepherd kings. Other translations say these are the foreign kings. I think both of these actually apply to the people known as the Hyksos. And I warn you that the Hyksos is a Greek word. And the reason we know about the Hyksos is because of, of four uh, classic historians. One of them, of course, is Josephus. The other is Eusebius. And I have uh, quickly forgotten the other two, but we, we, touched, we talked about them in our first class last week. But Josephus, he, he quotes the ancient historian, the, I should say the classic historian, who was, who, was a, who was close to being a contemporary of his. He actually lived uh, after the time 
of Manetho. Manetho was an Egyptian historian. All of his writings were lost when they burned the uh, library at Alexandria. And it is, it is from this record that we learn about the Hyksos. It is because Josephus spoke of the Hyksos that even many biblical archaeologists, and, and I'm afraid to say even some rabbis who I respect, believe that the Hyksos are the pharaohs of the Exodus period. This is, let me read you very quickly what Josephus says. And he, he says that I shall begin with the writings of the Egyptians, not indeed those that have written in the Egyptian language, which is impossible for me to do. He's admitted that he can't read ancient Egyptian scripts or dialects. So he depends on a man who wrote in the Greek tongue, a man by the name of Manetho. And Manetho, he says, in his second book of Egyptian history, writes concerning us, he says, uh, concerning us, concerning the Israelites in the following manner. Now, what, what we've happened upon here is a conclusion that has been drawn by Josephus based on the writings of an historian who these days has widely been accepted as being extremely anti-Jewish. And he, he, he proves it when you read what, he, what he's written about the, the Hebrews, calling them lepers, uh, these kinds of things. But this is what Manetho says when he begins his account of how the Hyksos come into Egypt. He says, there was a king of ours whose name was Timaeus, and under him it came to pass, I know not how, that God was averse to us. He was angry with them. Uh, he says, and there came after a surprising manner men of ignoble birth out of the eastern parts and had boldness enough to make an expedition into our country. And with ease they subdued Egypt by force yet without any hazarding a battle with them. So when they'd gotten those that governed us under their power, they afterwards, and this is after they came into the, into the country of Egypt, Manetho says that these foreigners burnt down their cities, demolished the temples of the Egyptian gods, and used all the inhabitants of Egypt in a most barbarous manner. Nay, some they slew, and they led our children and their wives into slavery. Well, here, here is the problem with all of this. It doesn't sound like the Hebrews. Because the, the Hebrews, of course, came in as a family of 70, and they came in in a very peaceful manner. Uh, they, they never, as far as we know, ever burnt down any temples. And here is the other big problem with saying that the Hyksos are the, uh, the Hebrews. Because in, in all of the histories of ancient Egypt, even according to Manetho, the Hyksos ruled as pharaohs. And they list some of the, the better known. Uh, Papi was, was one, uh, Salitus, Apachnan, Hamudi, Jacob Baal, and Apopos. Now, Jacob Baal, as you'll see him on your screen, is of particular interest to us because in a recent documentary by Simka Jakobovici on, uh, I think it was the History Channel, he says that because the Hyksos had um, Semitic-sounding names, they had to be the Hebrews. And he says that, that one of them was called Jacob Baal. But here is the problem. If we're to believe the Torah and all the Midrash and the Talmud and all sources that come to us from the Jewish people, we have to, we have, we have to choose who to believe. Do we believe those sources or do we believe a gentleman who is making a, a guess, an educated guess? Because here's the thing. If, if they are who we believe they are, and I'll get into that later, they would have naturally had names that were of Semitic origin because they had a Semitic background. However, they were not the Israelites because even the later pharaoh who conquered the Hyksos speaks of them in a manner of how treacherous they were and how, they, uh, how bloodthirsty they were. 
Now, some could say, well, they didn't like the Israelites, so they're going to paint a very bad picture of them. I don't think so, because the, the problem is, is that they also called them kings and pharaohs, and they list them. In fact, some of the pharaohs, Seletus, ruled Egypt, and he ruled the Nile Delta region. And it's, it's possible that we get the uh, word sultan from Seletus. Josephus does, so, does say in his work, and the, work, the book is called Flavius Josephus against Appion. Appion is a Greek gentleman who uh, had a debate with Josephus. And he says in the same account that I just quoted to you that some say that the Hyksos were Arabs. And I think that is closer to the truth than anything we've run across now. Another king was called Apachnon. He was considered the greatest of the Hyksos. And they found some of his seals even as far away as the island of Crete. And I will tell you, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I will tell you who I believe that the Hyksos were. I believe they were the, the children of Amalek. And I'll give you very quickly a couple of reasons why. The Egyptians did not call these people Hyksos. That's what the Greek word for this, this line of, of pharaohs was called. The Egyptians called them in their tongue Amu. Okay? And it said that they, they, that they worshipped the god Sutek, also known as the god of Seth. Well, if you read Numbers 24:17, where where uh, the the um, the sorcerer is trying to curse the Israelites when they're they're in the land of Moab and they're camped out below, and he's hired the great seer is is uh, uh, Bilam is hired to curse the Israelites. He can't do it, and he invokes a number of other nations and how they will rise and fall. And in Numbers 24:17, he mentions in the same breath as he mentions Esau. And he mentions Amalek. He also mentions the children of Seth. And the children of Seth, according to some of our rabbinical commentators, were also the children of Amalek because they worshipped the god Seth. So did the Hyksos. And I think you're going to find out as we get later into this study that you're going to see there are other reasons to believe that Amalek was the Hyksos, mainly because they don't even fit in the time period. There are others who look at pharaohs like in the 18th dynasty. They believe that Amos is possibly the pharaoh of the Exodus. And the reason that they point this out is because his name is so much like our Moses or uh, Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, that, that is actually one of the only reasons. Amos was the one who drove out the Hyksos and finally restored the Egyptians uh, under Egyptian rule. And Amos, of course... Uh, was later uh, replaced by Amenhotep, and later by Akhenaten, and, and finally Tutmosis. And then we get into the 19th dynasty, and we see Ramesses II and Meneftah. All of these are the, I'll say, the usual suspects for being the so-called pharaohs of the Exodus. And I'm going to get into a reason, other reasons why these guys do not fit, um, I guess, the template this is, this is the remains of the pharaoh known as Amos. And uh, he, of course, as I said, is the one who ran off or battled the, uh, the Hyksos. This is an inscription from the tomb of a soldier who fought against the Hyksos with the pharaoh called Amos, who we just saw, his mummy. And it says on his wall, let me speak to you and tell you of the honors I've received, how I was decorated with gold during the siege of Avaris, the king noticed me fighting bravely on foot and promoted me. We took avarice. I carried off four people, a man, three women, and his majesty, and let, he let them keep, me as, uh, keep them as slaves. 
And the reason, of course, I bring this up is because it shows that they had to have a battle. It's an historic reference to a tomb that they had to battle these Hyksos to make them leave Egypt. And some of our archaeologists say, well, these are the Israelites. We didn't have to battle the Israelites to get them to leave Egypt. These are the Armana tablets found at a, um, a site uh, known as Tel El Armana. They were discovered in 1887. Uh, most of it is cuneiform correspondence, which, believe it or not, in that time period was the lingua franca of, of governments. Most of the governments, no matter what they spoke, they corresponded in cuneiform. Even the Egyptians did. They sent letters off all over the Near East. And it is on this tablet and among these tablets that they mention a people called the Hapiru, and they also mention a place called Jerusalem. And some believe that this pharaoh, because the pharaoh known as Akhenaten, who wrote some of these letters, he and his father, they believe that this was the pharaoh of the Exodus because this pharaoh that you see on your screen now was famous for being a monotheist. The problem with that is that he, didn't, he did not believe or even worship the one true God of Israel. I believe his references on his tombs and his temples would have made specific reference to a God that was not the God of the Egyptian people, but he happened to worship one God out of the broad list of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon. So there are some that say that Akhenaten is the pharaoh of the Exodus because, of course, he supposedly was so taken by uh, the witness, if you will, of Moses and Aaron that he later went ahead and, and, and worshipped the God of Israel and became a monotheist. You, you're going to see later on why this gentleman also does not fit. The, the mummy you see in front of you is the mummy of Tutmosis II. He married Hatshepsut, who was the second female pharaoh of Egypt. She wasn't the first. Tutmosis is, is also considered to be a possible candidate as the pharaoh of the Exodus. And I'm sad to say that one of my favorite rabbis, the late Rabbi Arya Kaplan of blessed memory, says that it's possible that this mummy is the remains of the mummy of the uh, Exodus pharaoh. Now, something I want to point out is that, uh, well, we're going to go to one more, but also... The one reason I don't believe that this guy figures in, because he also helped run off the last of the, the Hyksos. He battled the last of the Hyksos and helped restore Egypt like his, his predecessors did, finally and fully to Egyptian blood. And his wife's temple at Deir el-Bahari talks about the Hyksos and how bloodthirsty they were and how they were like renegades and they were like, they were like what we would call present-day terrorists. And the other problem that I have with this, being, this man being called the Pharaoh of the Exodus because his name is so close is he's called Tutmosis, but Tutmosis is a Greek corruption of his real name. His real name is Duhudimush or Duhudimush. And as I, I explained earlier, even the vowels in the names of the Egyptian pharaohs are educated guesses because we don't really know what vowels were used because ancient hieroglyphs and ancient hieratic writing all were missing vowels like ancient Hebrew. This is the remains of Ramesses the Great. Ramesses the, the Great ruled 67 years. He's also called Ramesses II. And he is the favorite candidate for being the pharaoh of the Exodus. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons. First of all, people often point to the word Ramesses appearing uh, in the book of Exodus. It also appears in the book of Genesis, in Breshit. 
And let me point out to you that the word Ramesses appears only five times in the entire Tanakh. It appears four times in the Torah. And all five times that it appears in, in the Tanakh, in, in the Hebrew Bible, it is only used as a geographical designation. It is never the name of a pharaoh. In fact, prior to the Exodus, a very odd thing occurs in your Tanakh. Prior to the Exodus, all pharaohs that are mentioned are not mentioned by name. And I think there's a very, very specific reason for that, which I, I will get into later. But right now we're concentrating on, on the remains of this gentleman. It's interesting that they found out in the 1970s by examining the tissue, kind of archaeological CSI, if you will, that this pharaoh, who died around, um, around his 70s, died of a dental infection. He was old, and he died of a dental infection. Now, the thing that I want to point out to you is that all of these pharaohs, some who, whose scholars believe might be not only the pharaoh of Moses, some believe it might even be Moses. There, there are actually scholars that believe that, that, that Moses was actually a pharaoh and that the story was somehow tangled up and spit out and, and that he later, in legendary terms, adopted by the Hebrew people, became their savior known as Moses. Well, the problem with that is, is if you believe your Torah, and we have all the mummies available to look at today, we have their actual remains, then we can't believe that these any of these personages are Moses because we know that the, the tomb of Moses has been hidden until this day. It's also equally hard to believe that any of these pharaohs are the pharaoh of the Exodus because if we're to believe our Torah and all the Jewish sources, the pharaohs all were swept away in the splitting of the Sea of Reeds. So I don't think we're going to have any of the remains. Now, Ramesses is, is called the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and I think we can, we can... Let me tell you something interesting about this Pharaoh. His name, his birth name, was not Ramesses. He was born Par Amasu. He was later, his name was later changed to Ramesses because the previous Pharaoh had no male heir, so he adopted this man who was a general and rose him, uh, put him up to the rank of Pharaoh, and he changed his name to Ramesses. And he uh, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit off. Let me go back. That, that, the remains that you saw are the remains of Ramesses II. It was his grandfather that was the first Ramesses. Now, a lot of people believe that this is a clue to when the Israelites came into Egypt, that the pharaoh in power had a region that was named after him. And I'm going to tackle that in just a second. But I, want to, I know you're looking at your screen and going, what in the world do we have up here? Why are we showing a, a frame grab from the Ten Commandments? It is because of the influence of this movie that I believe that many people believe that Ramesses the Great is the pharaoh of the Exodus. When this was made in 1956... It, uh, it was researched very heavily, and the, uh, in fact, they had, they had as their consultants five religious scholars, but only one rabbi was among those five religious scholars. Um, he was a rabbi Zopal from Los Angeles. The rest of them were Protestant scholars, and the, uh, one of the gentlemen who acted as a consultant, who was not a religious scholar, was an author. And he was so overwhelmed by all the research done by these religious scholars that he later published a book that was published the same year that the movie came out. And it was called, I believe, Egypt, 
uh, I think I believe it's called Ramesses in Egypt, and I, I should have looked up the title. But his name was Henry Nordlinger, and it is because of his book and because of the influence, I believe, of this movie, because I was just reading a, a, one of my favorite books, a book called The Past Imperfect. Uh, a book, uh, the subtitle of the book is History According to the Movies. And in it, the author has a series of, of lengthy essays, and he drives home the point that what most people know about history, they get it from Hollywood. In fact, any of you who are much younger than me, you spent probably a lot of time in a darkened classroom when it was time for history watching historical movies. And if you read the book Past Imperfect, you'll see that the movies, nine times out of, out of ten, got history very wrong, as did this movie. I remember vividly, as a, uh, a child, sitting in the theater, the darkened theater, watching this wonderful coming attractions trailer. This is a frame grab from it. And here is the director, Cecil B. DeMille, one of the few directors in the 1950s whose name was recognizable to the general public. And in this, this coming attractions trailer, I remember vividly watching Cecil B. DeMille walking around and showing props from the film, and he walks over to a giant, massive Bible, and he points at the book of Exodus, and he says, here is where we get the beginning of our story. And he pretends to read from the text of Exodus. And he says to the camera, he says these words, And the Pharaoh Ramesses, the great, put the Israelite people into harsh bondage. Now, if any of you have a Torah in front of you, pop it open, and I challenge you to find anything that sounds like that phrase in your Bible, whether it's a King James Bible, whether it's a Torah, whether it's a Tanakh, you will not find that phrase that the Pharaoh Ramesses put the Israelites into harsh bondage. The closest you'll get to the harsh bondage is you'll, hear, you'll read a phrase that says, there was a Pharaoh who arose who knew not Joseph. So I really, in some ways, I blame Cecil B., even though he did a tremendous service of reminding all of us that there was a story of the Exodus, and it was, a, uh, it was he believed, a real event in the history of Egypt. He did a lot of disservice because he propagated the myth that Ramesses the Great was the pharaoh of the Exodus. And there is nothing in the time of Ramesses the Great that would lead us to believe that he's the pharaoh of the Exodus. First of all, his time period was, was extremely stable. It was not marked by any great catastrophes of any kind. There was no massive uh, exodus of any slaves. In fact, they often say, well, there was a minor slave revolt. And that probably uh, is what the Hebrew people took and blew into their myth of the Exodus story. But here's the problem. If we look at the biblical text, and if we believe that the land of Ramesses, and we read that phrase in even the book of Genesis, when, when Joseph tells his father to come down to Egypt and says that they've given us land in the district called Goshen, in the area called Ramesses, some people say, well, it was called that because it was named after the pharaoh. If we go to the first pharaoh ever called Ramesses, as far as we know, we will see that he ruled two years. His son ruled 11 years. His grandson, Ramesses the Great, Ramesses II, only ruled 67 years. If we total up the length of their reigns, we get 79 years. Why is that a problem? Because if Joseph was the pharaoh, or rather, if Joseph was prime minister when Ramesses I was in power, then, because we know from the, from the Torah record that Joseph was prime minister of Egypt for a total of 80 years, 
then if we were to believe this, this, this time period, then that means that Joseph would have been alive at the time of the Exodus. I hope you all see that. And if you don't, you can, you can write me and I'll explain it further. Another problem we run into is that historians tell us that they base um, the biblical uh, story or biblical um, clue that we find in Kings chapter 6, verse 1. It tells us that Solomon built Beit Hamidash. He built the Temple of Solomon, as we call it today, 480 years after the Exodus. Now, I happen to believe that verse, as I believe all verses in the Tanakh. I don't have any problem with it. And in fact, if you go to the other chronological sources available to us from the Jewish sources, that time period works out. But here is the situation that we get into when we listen to the secular scholars. If you look at this date, 1212 BCE, that's, that's the generally accepted archaeological and historical date that the scholars say this is when Ramesses II, or Ramesses the Great, died. And they also tell us, those that believe in biblical stories and happen to be scholars, they tell us that Solomon's Temple was built in 966 BCE. Here's where we run into trouble. If you do your math, you'll see very quickly that that doesn't work according to what we're reading in the Bible in 1 Kings, because we see that if we go by their timekeeping, we fall short of 966 BCE by nearly 200 years, not, not quite 200. So that time period doesn't work for Ramesses. There are just so many problems connected with using Ramesses the Great as the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and the only, the only link we have is his name. And I think that's pretty shaky evidence to, to base an entire history of the Exodus upon. So let's go to the next slide right now. Here is another Pharaoh who is possibly, and, and by some considered to be, a contemporary of Moses and the children of Israel. And we have this wonderful stele. If you ever visit the, the massive uh, Cairo Museum uh, in Egypt, in Cairo, of course, you'll see this stele. It's, it's roughly about... It's all, it looks like it's about 10, 10 or 15 feet high. At the bottom, you'll see a little area that, that reads, and it's, of course, squared in red, Israel is laid waste and his seed is not. And, of course, it mentions other sites, other geographical sites that we know from our Tanakh that were ancient biblical sites that were there at the time of Israel. The reason this is important for our study is because, first of all, it is, it is archaeological evidence written in stone that there was an ancient Israel. In fact, they can't argue with us. They say that this is the oldest monument or the oldest proof we have in stone that Israel existed as a nation. And they say, well, this, this of course, shows us that it happened. Uh, the Exodus may have occurred during the time of Merneptah. Merneptah was the son of Ramesses the Great. He also had a very stable time period. There were, there, were, there were no problems of any enormous uh, plagues uh, that we read in the Torah. Nothing, nothing that even approaches that. No problems. A very prosperous time. Of course, he fought battles. But Merneptah, in, in this hieroglyph, if, if you look over to the left of the, of the, of the hieroglyph, of the line of, of glyphs there, you'll see, a little, you'll see a little figure. You'll see two figures. One is a man and, and one is a woman. And there are three hash marks under these figures. Those are called determinatives. And those determinatives, determinatives tell us that this glyph is not for a geographical designation of Israel. 
It is for a people known as Israel. Now, the reason that I think this is important for us is because it shows us that they're mentioning a nation called Israel. But if you check all of your rabbinical sources and all of your chronologies and all and the Talmud, you will learn that Israel as a nation was not called Israel by other surrounding nations until they had a king and a kingdom. Prior to that, they were called, uh, well, actually kind of a pejorative. They were called Ivri. And uh, Ivri, or Iver, which is where we get the word over, or go across, is a pejorative because it means a sojourner, almost like calling somebody a gypsy, someone who won't settle in one place. So, okay, well, you're saying to me, Jim, you've, you've, you've torn down the Egyptian model. You've torn down or attempted to tear away all of the other theories about uh, the Israelites and looking for them in the Egyptian historical record. And some people will say, well, look, we can't find uh, the Egyptian uh, record full of any references of the Israelites, and that proves that there was no exodus. But not so fast, because there are some other considerations. Because you have to remember there's a wonderful law that we can apply first of all, and that is lack of physical evidence or absence of physical evidence does not mean there was an absence of a people or a, an event or a culture. It only means we haven't found everything yet, and we're finding things all the time. Now, why don't we, another, you may say, well, Jim, we've got to find something. Well, there are a lot of good reasons why we don't find a lot of, for instance, pottery and cultural evidence in Egypt or even in the Sinai Peninsula. And the first good reason is this. They were, they were living as Egyptians. The biggest problem that the Israelite people had, that the Hebrew people had, is they had become assimilated. Becoming assimilated is actually what allowed them to become enslaved. Because they wanted, it was because of their desire to be like Egypt, to be good Egyptian citizens, which has always been the problem for the Jews. They've always wanted to be like the other nations. And this was, this was uh, dramatically demonstrated during their time in, in the exile in Egypt. They became very good Egyptian citizens. And, of course, they adopted Egyptian dress. They adopted their customs, except, of course, for the tribe of Levi. Much of the tribe of Levi were what we would today call Orthodox Jews. They remembered the seasons. They remembered, they remembered a number of things. And they even remembered the things that were supposed to happen, all the promises and the prophecies. And so the other, Jewish tri the other tribes of Israel became great bankers, and they became great scholars and educators and craftsmen, and they, became, they, they had a great contribution to Egyptian society. And what I'm saying is, is that when the Exodus occurred later, Many of them took with them things that were created as Egyptians. Picture you will today, what if a mass exodus were to occur here in America? What if, um, what if many, Egypt, what if many uh, Jewish families who were assimilated, but who suddenly saw through possibly a series of plagues that they were the chosen people and that they needed to make Aliyah back to Israel, what if all of these assimilated families decided to go? They would be taking with them their American-made clothes, their American-made uh, toasters, or whatever they could bring with them. Now, there are other reasons. And I think this picture in front of you really illustrates the reason that we don't find a lot of monumental evidence to figures like Moses. And that is, is that we don't have pillars, we don't have stelae, and we don't have statues 
of all of the heroes of the Tanakh. Okay, because, because first of all, Israel as a nation has always valued ideas and concepts and most of all, knowledge above everything else. This is, what, this is what the people of Israel, this is what the Jewish people have always given to the world, and that is knowledge and the value of learning. In fact, it's, it's the lack of this. Is, Torah Judaism does not promote hero worship, only the worship of the Creator. And in fact, it would have been unthinkable, even abominable, for the patriarchs or leadership of Israel to have been honored, honored rather, in, in monuments and statues. So we have to look and we have to say, we have to establish, are there other ways to establish that even Israel existed as a nation? And that the things that we read in the Tanakh. So what I want to do is, before I get back into the story of the Exodus, I want to see if, if we can track even, even the other tales that we find in the Tanakh. And we're eventually going to get to startling parallels between the Egyptian archaeological record and the Jewish historical text. And that's just a real quick overview, but I want to get to these uh, artifacts first of all. This is to those who call themselves the minimalist. There is an archaeological school called the minimalist, and the minimalists believe that we can't believe what is written in the biblical record. We can only believe what is, what, is, what is exhumed from the ground and let that record speak for itself. But yet, friends, when the record literally speaks to us from the ground with the written word, they deny it. Now, here are examples where we have found things inscribed in stone, and we can find these figures mentioned in your Tanakh. This is, a, this is an inscription that was found in, in modern-day Jordan back in 1967. Uh, it's a site called Deir Allah. It's near, it's actually kind of northeast uh, of, of the present-day Sea of uh, the, the Kinneret, the so-called Sea of Galilee. They found it in an ancient sanctuary. It was an inscription written on brittle lime. Now, if you remember from reading in your Torah in Deuteronomy 27, uh, there is a, a reference to the Israelites being commanded to write on stones covered with lime. Well, I'm not saying this is one of those inscriptions. I'm saying that here is evidence that people in antiquity did this kind of thing because this is ancient Aramaic. It's been dated so far roughly around 1200 B.C. Some say it's even earlier than that. I believe it's, it's, it's a little bit earlier. But it, meant, it, it, it directly references a biblical figure who in this inscription is, is likened to a seer. The, the people that wrote this inscription that was found in this ancient destroyed... Um, monastery, if you will, not really a monastery, that's not really a, it's more like a sanctuary. It talks about great calamities coming upon the area where they uncovered this inscription, and that great things were going to befall, and that, and that darkness was going to come, and storms, and, and, it, and it all is promised, it is all warned, it comes from the lips, in the inscription, a man called Bilam, son of Baor. And if you've read your Torah, you know that Bilam, son of Beor, of course, is the seer that was hired by the kings uh, in, in what is now uh, Moab, what used to be Moab in, in Edom. He was hired by the kings to curse Israel, and he could not curse them. And there he, his name is written in an ancient inscription in Aramaic. This is, of course, the remains of Jericho. It has one of the best pedigrees of any archaeological find, but there is still a debate raging unto this day as to whether this is actually biblical Jericho. It was excavated in the 1930s by John Garstang. In the 1950s, the famous uh, anthropologist Kathleen Kenyon from Britain, she dug here in the 1950s. 
everything we read about it is consistent with what we read in the book of Joshua about the battle of Jericho. And I'm going to quickly review what we know from the the book of Joshua. We know, and, and you can I apologize that you can't read where the verses came from. I'll try to give you Joshua 2.15 tells us that Rahab's house was part of the city wall, or she helped the spies. It tells us in Joshua 5.10 that Israel celebrated the Passover before the siege. And we know that this, this was a celebration that was also a harvest festival. We know that about, about the Feast of Pesach. Joshua 6.17 tells us that they were commanded, the Israelites were commanded to leave everything except the silver and gold. We know from Joshua 6.20 the, wall, the walls fell with a shout and the, the blast of the shofar. And we know that from Joshua 6.24 that Jericho was finally put to the torch and it was burned. And, of course, we know that the walls fell uh, with the shout and with the blow of the shofar or the shofar road, actually. So what are we, why am I bringing all this out? Well, here's what we know from the dig. This is what we found. We found that there was housing built into the outer walls, just as we, as we just read about Rahab. Amazingly, the dwellings in this dig, it was still uh, preserved at, at Jericho. The dwellings were found to be brimming with grain. Now, why is this even unusual? Well, almost every ancient dig that has been exhumed, any city that was destroyed by another culture, another tribe, another nation, they always destroyed that city for its wealth, for its bounty, its booty. And that included its grain and food supplies, not just its gold and silver. Yet, whoever attacked Jericho and burnt Jericho to the ground, because they know it was burnt to the ground, they left the grain. In fact, they found pots and... and, and uh, other, other storage items brimming with grain. We also know that they said somehow a collapse of walls had been caused by an earthquake. And here's what Kathleen Kenyon finally said. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire. Every room was filled with fallen bricks and timbers. Debris was heavily burnt. The collapse of the eastern rooms seems to have taken place before they were affected by fire. This is the scenario we just read in the book of Joshua. Yet, Kathleen Kenyon said this was not biblical Jericho. You know why she said that? Because she said the pottery. She couldn't find the pottery that dated it to the time she believed that the exodus occurred or the 40-year period following the exodus occurred because she could not find uh, anything that related to that time period. She did find the pottery. She did find artifacts. But her method of dating said, well, I didn't find the pottery I was looking for, and since it's missing, and since we can't find the pottery that I believe would date it, this is not biblical uh, Jericho. So therefore, her, her actual conclusions were based on what was missing. And I don't know about you, friends, but I think there's something terribly wrong with that kind of thinking. That, friends, is an alien archaeologist. Here are some other digs that you might, you might want to visit when you get to Israel next time to Eretz Israel. This is a wonderful site you can visit. It's the city of David. It's been exhumed and excavated by Elat Mazar. It borders the Kidron Valley. There have been seals found there that confirm that the royal scribes of the, of the courts of Israel, the courts of Jehoiakim, of Zedekiahu, also known as Zedekiah, uh, from the first temple era, the, the, the seals even tell us that this was the city of David. It's in the place that Tanakh tells us it, it uh, was uh, situated. 
another dig you might want to, or another artifact you might want to see, go to the Israel Museum and see the Tel Dan fragment. The minimalists hate this fragment because in the writing, in Aramaic, in this basalt chunk, it, it literally mentions the house of David and it, it mentions King David. It mentions both Beit uh, HaDavid and David HaMelech. This was an inscription done by um, uh, the king known as um, King Hazael, and he boasted of the battles that were against the kings of Israel and Judah, who were, he says in this inscription, of the house of David, and uh, were descendants of King David. So there again is direct reference to a king we know and love as King David, yet the minimalists say, well, we doubt if this guy actually existed. When you go to the British Museum, you'll see the black obelisk. It mentions tributes that were given by the Assyrian king, uh, who was called um, Sennacherib, and uh, I'm sorry, Shalmaneser, and Shalmaneser is, is mentioned on this. You, you walk around it as if you're reading uh, panels in a cartoon, and you walk around it, and as you walk around, you read that tribute was uh, given from Yahweh, the son of Umri, and all, uh, all the, the commentators and all archaeologists agree that this is Jehu, the son of Omri, and you'll read about this event and about giving tribute and about their interplay with uh, King uh, Shalmaneser in 2 Kings 17.3 and in 2 Kings uh, chapter 18, verse 9. There's more in the British Museum, a great place to go visit. You'll see the... Um, the cylinder knows in the, as the it's the, they called it to the Taylor Prism. The Taylor Prism was found in 1830 by Colonel R. Taylor. That's where it gets its name, and it is a vivid account of Sennacherib attacking all of these countries in and around uh, Israel, and finally his campaign against Jerusalem. And in it, we find what I call the first example of ancient spin doctoring, because what he says, what Sennacherib actually says on this prism. He, he, because we know when we read the biblical account that he, he did not take Jerusalem. His army was destroyed. If you'll read the account in Second Kings that we give here on the screen, you'll see that his whole army was destroyed. But Sennacherib survived the destruction and went back home to his throne in Assyria. And he said on this prism, as for Hezekiah the Judean, who did not submit to my yoke, I shut him up in Jerusalem like a royal bird in a cage. So instead of going back home and saying he lost the battle, he says, well, I, I kept him shut up like a bird in a cage. Another artifact of antiquity that is also hated by the uh, minimalist is the Meshastele, found in modern-day Jordan. It describes King Mesha and his revolt against the kingdom of Israel. And it is during the, the reign of King Omri. This four-foot-high stele, inscribed in ancient Aramaic, now sits in France in the, um, the Louvre. And it was found near the ancient area of Dibon. What I like about this is it not only describes what you will read in 2 Kings chapter 3, the other thing that I love about this stele is it mentions something else that you read in your Torah and your Tanakh, or in your Tanakh, and that is the idea that there were tribes, ancient tribes, that were promised land on the Jordanian side of, of modern-day Middle East. Um, and this is something a lot of people don't quote when they read the Mesha Stele. It says, at the, the, the lower part of the, um, the Stele, it says, And the men of God lived in Atarot from ancient times, and the king of Israel built Atarot for himself. You can read that 
Read, read the idea that God, the, the, the tribe of Gad, was one of the tribes that were given land in what is present-day Jordan on the other side of the Jordan River. And this stele attests to that just as the biblical record does. Most scholars do not quote that part of the stele because they don't like it. If you go to Karnak in Egypt, you go to this wall that features a bas-relief of ancient Philistines. They were the sworn enemies of the Egyptians. We're told by one of the more uh, honest practitioners of archaeology. She's an Israeli lady by the name of Trudy Dotan. And she tells us of the Philistines. She says that without the Bible, we wouldn't even known there were Philistines. Or, or as they're called in the biblical text, they're called the Pelishtim. And the Pelishtim, of course, comes from the word Pelishet, which means a land grabber. Which the later word for Philistia was given to the name of the land, and it was called Palestine. Uh, and they're still digging today. They, they, they dig up the cities that you'll read about in your, in your Tanakh, Ekron, Gezer, Ashkelon. And they continue to find the signs of destruction. And they also find the, uh, the iron tools that were made by the Pelishtim. If you read in your Tanakh, you'll see that even the Israelites weren't allowed to have iron tools unless they were permitted to, uh, permitted to have these by the, the Pelishtim overseers. Also, in Egypt, you'll see the campaign of Shoshak. That's what he's called by the Egyptians. Remember, the vowels in this Shoshak are guesses by present-day Egyptologists. This is biblical Shishak. He's referenced in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. This wall mentions the cities and the districts of Ayalon, Gibeon, Mahanaim, Bethshan, Shunem, Tanakh, and Megiddo, as well as the kingdom of Judah. These are mentioned in the Tanakh in these verses in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. They're also mentioned on this wall. And Shishak came into these areas and laid them waste. And, of course, when he went to Jerusalem, uh, he was given a large tribute to simply go away. Now, those are just a few of the things found in stone and in artifacts that directly reference what we find in your Tanakh. This, this, elicit, this slide elicits a lot of laughter when I show this in my um, uh, lectures. And I want people to laugh. It kind of breaks the tension. But it's a point that I often, I often try to drive home in my lectures. And it, it's a vital point of my documentary and um, of my book. And that is that we need to value the ancient Jewish sources. If you went to, to dig up <coughs> pardon me, the, the, the histories of the ancient Chinese, or conversely, the origins of the Irish, you would go to the Chinese people. The same would happen if you went to, to find the origins of the, of the Irish, or the Romans, or the Greeks. You would go to their sources, to their writers. This does not happen, for some reason, when we look into the histories of ancient Israel and of the Jewish people. And I'm going to introduce you, if you already don't know about these sources, I'm going to introduce you, to, because in, in, in addition to the Talmud, the Midrash, and the ancient chronology known as the Seder HaOlam, we're able to look into these sources, and we're able to find out the answers to the riddle of the Exodus. And here's one of the first things that we find out, and this is important. The reason that the Jewish records are so important is because since antiquity, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, have always honored time as being sacred. Even in the Torah, time is sacred. Though your Torah is not in chronological order, and that's important to remember, 
That does not mean that there is not a definite and specific order to the way the Torah is written. Because you've got to remember, Torah is instruction first and foremost. It is then afterwards, it is, it is histories, it is deep uh, Kabbalistic teachings, it is, of course, the other, it is the template for the creation of the world. And we know from Bereshit, uh, the second chapter, that God sanctified time when he, quote, rested on the, se on the, uh, the seventh day. He told us that time was holy. And he's told his people that time was holy. And he's told them to remember all of their traditions, to keep the Shabbat holy, to number the days, to remember their Passovers, the calendars. And it was even Abraham, the ancient patriarch, that knew the, the secret of the, of the leap year. He knew the secret of the calendar. It is because of this that the Jewish people's own chronology, their own calendar, ha does not have any gaps in it. Okay? And we'll look at this slide a little bit later because this is something we touched on earlier uh, last week. And this is the time period. Now, if we look into a midrash that is known as the Sefer HaYashar, we begin to unlock the riddles of the Exodus. The Sefer HaYashar is mentioned twice in your Tanakh. In Joshua 10.18 and in 2 Samuel 1.18, it asks the question after, after relating a, a particular event, it says, have you not read this in the Sefer HaYashar or the book of Jeshur? And we find this out first and foremost in chapter 63 of the Sefer HaYashar, that Melul, Melul was called the Pharaoh of the Oppression. Melul was the name given to the Pharaoh who put the Israelites into harsh bondage. It tells us some amazing things about him. It recounts his whole history on the throne of Egypt. It tells us some, some frightful things that he did, such as bathing in the blood of Egypt. It was, uh, of the, I'm sorry, of the uh, Hebrews. It was this Pharaoh who said, he, 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 this Pharaoh was the one who gave the order to drown the Egyptian infants. Now, Milo, it says, was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 94 years. We know that the last 10 years of his reign, according to the Sefer Yashar, he was in great agony because he began to suffer boils and stomach disorders, and his son had to, well, his son was named Pharaoh, but he did not actually take the throne as the official Pharaoh until sometime later, and he only reigned for four years. And we learned again from the same source, Sefer HaYashar, that this Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of the Exodus, he reigned only four years because his father reigned 94 years, but 10 years he was sick and then he died because he'd been wicked from the Lord. And we learned also that the Pharaoh of the Exodus was called Adikam. He was exceedingly ugly and he was a cubit, a cubit and a, pan, a span in length. Sorry, I'm having problems with my mouth tonight. So I want to wrap up by telling you that what we need to do next week is we need to look for these pharaohs. And I'm going to tell you a little more about them next week if we have time. These two periods, these two figures, the pharaoh of the oppression and the pharaoh of the exodus, we're going to look for them and, and, and see if we can find them in the Egyptian record, in the archaeological record. And guess what, friends? I believe we have found them. We found them and we have found other parallels to the story of the Exodus, and we probably have time for maybe one quick question, and I apologize for that. Appreciate the invite, Professor Narrett. Um, let me see here. I, I don't guess we have any questions. I've either bored everybody to death, <laughs> or um, maybe, it's, maybe it's too much information. So, um, Professor Narrett, I tell you what, I'm going to, uh, thanks everybody for um, 
for uh, tuning in. And as we used to say when I was in radio, I'll see you next week, same time, same station. And, um, gosh, I appreciate you guys coming on board. And if you have any questions, why don't you email me? And, um, um, you know, I'll try to answer any questions. Thank you very much for the, for the comments. And uh, like I said, if you've got any, if I confused you at all, uh, you can email me at, um, uh, well, email me at noahide2008 at yahoo.com. That's my other email. And I know it's my, my, my friends from this class. It's noahide, not noahide, but the address is spelled noahide, N-O-A-H-I-D-E, noahide2008 at yahoo.com if you have any questions and um Oh, thanks for the commercial there, guys, very much. And uh, Professor Nerrett, I'm going to try to stick around, and, and I'm going to turn the class over to you now, sir. And everybody, I'm looking forward to Professor Nerrett's class. Thank you very much.